Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, September the 4th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. It is one of the most long-standing international links in global politics, so entrenched, in fact, that the names of the two countries involved are often seen to be superfluous. But is the special relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States largely misunderstood? It's generally assumed to be built on bonds of language, on foreign policy goals, on a shared culture or indeed shared political ideals. In reality, though, it's built on money and on the global financial system that the two nations created together in the second half of the 20th century. At least that is the case made by Jeremy Green, lecturer in international political economy and fellow of Jesus College, University of Cambridge, in his new book, The Political Economy of the Special Relationship. And Jeremy Green is my guest today. Jeremy, you're very welcome. Good morning, Hugh. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I suppose, first of all, what do people usually think the special relationship is and that, that you're differing with on, on this question? Yeah, so the traditional understanding um, really focuses on, in particular, the, the military alliance between um, the UK and the US that was established really during the First and Second World Wars. And in fact, the, the, the term itself was coined by uh, Winston Churchill in, in 1946 to refer to this um, particularly deep um, military and political alliance between the two countries. And so the concept's generally been understood since then in terms of a kind of military, political, cultural affinity between two countries. Um, but what I point to in the book is a different story, uh, one which is much less well understood and, and much less well known. And that focuses on the role of uh, the UK and the United States in making um, the modern international financial system and looks at their role in the politics of money. Um, and so in the book, I look at the way in which government officials from the two countries, central bankers from the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve, as well as the private bankers in New York and the city of London, were crucial to shaping the modern global economy um, right from the 19th century during the gold standard up until the global financial crisis. So if we turn to, I think probably the, the key moment that you mentioned there is the immediate post-war period um, where a, a new world order, both in terms of you know, the United Nations and international relations is, is, is emerging. Obviously, the Cold War is happening. But the new financial order, which perhaps people don't pay as much attention to, you're saying is really at the, at, at the core and the crux of all this. Yes, absolutely. So one of the key turning points here is the development of something called the Eurodollar market uh, in the city of London during the late 1950s. Um, and this was a market for offshore US dollars, which really developed quite accidentally at first. Um, Soviet officials fearing that the United States would seize their dollar holdings in the context of the Cold War, deposited them with banks in London. And these banks then rather opportunistically started to use dollars for financing um, their own business, 
funding international trade and other activities like this. Um, and the long-term impact of this was to create a separate, relatively unregulated market for US dollars outside of the United States and outside of the jurisdiction of US authorities. Um, and this market was crucial to relaunching the City of London as an international financial centre in the decades after the Second World War. And that's because sterling, uh, which had previously been the dominant international currency, was facing all sorts of problems and vulnerabilities uh, linked to declining U UK economic power after the Second World War. And the impact of the Eurodollar markets was to draw United States banks into London during the 1960s to take advantage of this um, unregulated context. And from this position in London, they were then able to finance um, lots of investment and growth in international trade that was critical to driving forward globalization in the decades that followed. Uh, so this Eurodollar market integrated the money markets in the city of London and New York. It led to more interdependence between interest rate adjustments made by central banks in the two countries. And it led to a large volume of dollar flows between the US and the UK, and then into um, other economies around the world. And another impact of this was its um, effect in transforming the post-war financial regulations that had been set up in both the United Kingdom and the United States. Uh, and so as these bankers competed to attract uh, these dollar flows, they also pushed for a more relaxed regulatory climate to enable them to have a greater competitive advantage um, domestically. So over time, the more restrictive financial regulations put in place after the Second World War and after the Great Depression in the United States were gradually eroded by the way in which the Eurodollar market generated more competition and more pressure um, to attract deposits between these two financial centres. And, and we might come to the kind of the, the wave of deregulation which uh, swept across both countries in the from the early 1980s onwards in a moment. But first, it, one of the things that strikes me listening to that is is it, it inverts my own sense of what the special relationship was about because looking at it through the prism of international relations, military power, economic power, uh, the history of the special relationship since 1945 is one of British decline as exemplified by kind of landmark moments like the the, the, the humiliation of the Suez crisis, um, various economic problems in the 1960s rising to a head in the, uh, in the early 1970s. Um, and the US as the hegemonic power um, and Britain clinging on to this idea of a special relationship as a sort of scrap of respectability, I suppose, as its, as its traditional mercantile and imperial power declined or disappeared. Yeah, so that's certainly the dominant story in terms of how we've understood the, um, the power relations that have shaped the international economy from the 19th century up until the present. So traditionally, we understand that Britain was the dominant economic power um, up until the First World War. And then between the two wars, there was a kind of transitional phase in which the United States was becoming more powerful, but wasn't yet prepared or ready to lead the international economy. And that kind of leadership deficit was then resolved after the Second World War when the United States began to play a much more dominant and prominent role in shaping the global economy and its own image in the context of um, a, a declining UK economy. And I sort of invert that story and show actually how the rise of the United States and the rise of its international financial dominance was shaped through the United Kingdom, through working with bankers in the City of London 
through cooperating with government officials in the United Kingdom. Um, because really the United States after the Second World War was not in a position to establish the dollar as the dominant international currency without taking advantage of the sorts of infrastructures and expertise that had been established in the City of London um, over previous decades during, during the heyday of, of UK imperial power. So really, rather than a clear succession of powers in which the US supplants the UK after the Second World War, there's a much more integrative dimension whereby um, America's financial ascendancy is actually working through the institutions of the City of London and is also in some important ways shaped and constrained by those institutions. So the decisions taken by UK monetary authorities, by the leading bankers in the City of London, also cause problems and challenges for US policymakers in the decades after the Second World War, not least how to regulate and control this growing supply of offshore dollars in the City of London that make it much more difficult for US policymakers to achieve their own domestic objectives in terms of economic policymaking. I suppose the thing I wonder about that listening to you there is that all makes a lot of sense. Um, the, the idea of offshore services and financial services on a smaller scale is something we're familiar with in Ireland. And we're, we don't associate it with, and I, I'm probably struggling for quite the right word here, but with a sense of agency in the location where the offshore services take place, that those services are used by the by by the, the, the more powerful country for, for its own purposes, um, but that control remains where, where the centre of power is, which in this case would be the United States. Yeah, I mean, so absolutely, this is still a very uneven power relationship. And the book doesn't argue that the UK was on a kind of equal footing um, with the United States after the Second World War. It's clearly a story of declining UK power in relative terms, but one in which the UK is still critical to the way in which international finance is, is reshaped after the Second World War. Um, but the agency of, of actors within the City of London is incredibly important because it's the bankers in the city and the regulators at the Bank of, of England that are critical to establishing the euro-dollar market. Uh, and that's not something that the United States could have done without those officials and without those bankers and their expertise based in London. It's also something that wasn't possible at the time in the United States because US financial regulations were more restrictive and were preventing US bankers from taking advantage of the potential fruits of financial globalization that would come in the following decades. So in this sense, the sorts of conditions that were created actively by the banking community in the City of London were able to draw in US finance into the City of London in a way that um, rapidly expanded the reach of the dollar as a, a dominant international currency. But also, of course, made the City of London, again, much more prestigious, much more significant than it would have been had it continued to rely on its own domestic currency, the pound sterling, which was critically weakened after the Second World War, and which also raised the prestige of the Bank of England, the UK Treasury, because they were now responsible for governing this incredibly important financial market that was at the heart of globalisation and absolutely critical 
to the way in which the international economy would take shape in the following decades. So then we arrive in the late 1970s at a point when there's um, there's a pushback takes place against the, the sort of received wisdom of Keynesian economics, which dictated a kind of a, um, a quite a strong government intervention into the market to, to achieve certain ends. Um, there's a move under um, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, who are both elected within a year of each other on either side of the Atlantic, to deregulate financial services to bring in innovations like the Big Bang in the in the city of London and generally a, a, quite a fundamental change. Um, what effect does that have on the process you've described? What happens to the special relationship there? Yeah, so the 1980s is obviously understood as a period in which the special relationship was sort of reignited um, under the particularly close personal relationship between uh, Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher but there's also a, a, a fundamentally important financial story that, that, that occurs um, during this, this decade. And to understand that, we have to, to be aware of those sorts of processes that I've already been talking about that began with the euro markets, the way in which these, these financial markets were more and more integrated. Essentially, um, it became more and more difficult to regulate the banking systems using the techniques that had been put in place after the Second World War under the kind of Keynesian um, heyday of, of approaches for managing the economy. And those sorts of techniques used administrative limits and ceilings on lending to try and shape the supply of money towards um, macroeconomic goals like boosting export competitiveness or financing industry. Uh, and so there was quite a lot of directive influence by the authorities in sort of telling the banks um, whether or not they could lend to particular sectors or businesses. And as the euro markets developed and competition increased and markets became more international, it became much more difficult in practice to apply these sorts of administrative limits to the way banks were lending to other parts of the economy. But in addition, the bankers themselves on both sides of the Atlantic started to lobby and push much more aggressively for a more relaxed, laissez-faire uh, regulatory context in their countries so that they could compete more effectively with one another. Uh, so we see this in particular in the, the kind of archival documents from the Bank of England that I use in the book, um, that the banking community was keen to remove some of the more restrictive financial conditions put in place after the Second World War. Alongside that, we also have the fight against inflation in the 1980s. And this is a part of the book where I focus on the rise of a new set of economic ideas, the monetarist ideas inspired by academic economists like Milton Friedman, who was very um, noted at this time. And monetarist ideas suggested that the control over inflation was critical to stabilising the economy during a very turbulent period coming out of the 1970s and pointed to the role of central banks in squeezing down inflation and restoring stability in the overall economy. And these ideas really began to rise to prominence both in the UK and the US. And they created, in addition to this more sort of structural alignment of their banking sectors towards pushing for more relaxed regulation, a shared intellectual climate whereby these new monetarist ideas about how to control inflation shaped central bank policy led to very high uh, interest rates being put in place both by the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve. This had the effect of strengthening their currencies, making their currencies more attractive to foreign investors as an asset, but also 
caused huge problems for the domestic manufacturing sectors in each country by making exports much less competitive in the context of, of more expensive currencies. So this is a pivotal moment in which internally within the two economies, the balance shifts further from a focus on manufacturing towards finance as being the, the leading entity in shaping economic dynamism. And that's a world that we can recognise to this day. Absolutely. So this is a kind of critical moment that sets in place lots of the dynamics that get us to the financial crisis, that get us to a situation in which we have in the UK and the US these very dominant, powerful financial services sectors um, that have accounted for more and more share of economic growth, um, but that also, of course, have driven very high levels of inequality in these two countries um, because we know that the the runaway bonuses and very, very generous um, remuneration packages available in Wall Street in London have been really important to skewing the income distribution in the Anglo-American economies. And it's really in the 1980s where you have the relaxation of these regulations um, and the turn to very high interest rates that we start to see the processes that ignite this kind of long-term transformation. I mean, listening to you, I wonder about um, a lot of what you're saying, it seems to me, would um, uh, justify the suspicions of the most anglophobic French, for example, who look with, you know, with great suspicion on the uh, the Anglo-Saxon world as they would see it and its intentions and its culture and its background. And I, I do wonder, as we move into the 1990s, uh, obviously, um, Britain has its mini disaster with the European regulatory mechanism and ends up not joining the the euro project but it is still uh, at that stage um becoming more and more part of the the single market um and how does that how do those two things play off and i suppose in addition to that a kind of a related question you are talking in wall street and the city of london the two most powerful markets in the world put together so what effect does the processes you've described happening in the 1980s have on other parts of the world for example europe yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. I think in terms of the European dimension, which I talk about um, quite a lot in the later chapters of the book, really from the 1970s onwards, uh, when the UK joins the uh, European Economic Community, we start to see London being a linchpin not only in these transatlantic financial markets, but also in terms of connecting New York to the continental European financial markets. Um, so because of the size of the London financial markets because of the expertise both in banking and, and regulation within London, the British authorities are extremely influential in leading the process of European financial integration. And it's often British um, banking authorities that represent the European voice in the 1970s and 1980s in discussions with the Americans about financial regulation. So the city becomes a kind of pivot in financial globalization, connecting New York on one side and Europe on the other. But this is also a difficult position to maintain politically at times, because there are repeated occurrences that I talk about in the book, whereby the Americans become frustrated or angered by the fact that they see the city increasingly moving towards a more privileged treatment of European markets over their American counterparts. And so mediating this relationship becomes becomes more difficult for the regulators and, and politicians involved in dealing with the politics of the City of London. But of course, this also allows the banking practices and techniques developed in the city, um, often 
heavily influenced by the American banks that are now based in the city on a very large scale to also shape financial practices and business strategies on mainland Europe. So it creates a kind of channel of influence whereby Anglo-American financial practices, techniques, products, and also regulatory expertise increasingly influence and shape the dynamics of European financial market integration. In a way, that's a a different version of one of the elements that we traditionally thought of about the special relationship, isn't it? Is that it involves the United Kingdom slightly uneasily at times looking both ways and trying to figure out which way is more important. But also, I suppose, on the positive side, allows the United Kingdom to present itself, as you say, as a bridge or a pivot between these two great markets to its east and to its west. Yeah, so that's certainly been an advantage um, for the city during the previous decades of financial integration in Europe. Um, But now in the context of Brexit, of course, it seems that that's going to be a much more difficult relationship um, for the United Kingdom to maintain, particularly in an international economy in which there's much more rivalry between great powers like China and the United States. Um, And, you know, depending on how the attempts to form a trade agreement with the European Union pan out in the coming months, if that ends acrimoniously and with a much less close uh, trading relationship, then you know, the city of London and the UK could find itself quite isolated uh, geopolitically. And, and that might make it much more difficult to play this kind of balancing role uh, as, a, as a major financial centre connecting the United States to Europe. That said, there are massive incentives for European banks and European financial interests to keep a close relationship with the city of London so that they can continue to benefit from the really unparalleled concentration of expertise and services based in the city. So the city needs a certain kind of relationship with Europe in order for it to maintain its appeal to to markets in New York and other parts of the world. But also, of course, the European financial community can't recreate overnight the sorts of expertise, institutions and clusters of, of people working in the city of London. And so they also have an interest in trying to maintain access to those markets. Yeah, an an uneasy balancing act, I would have thought at times. And I wonder how that part of the the pro-Brexit political movement, which sees it as a movement towards re-establishing Britain in some kind of traditional 19th century posture as a a, a bastion of free markets, free trade, uh, economic liberalism, trading across the world, how, how that fits in the world that we're really in now in the 2020s. Yeah, so it's interesting. We often we often lump Brexit in with the election of Donald Trump as a kind of symptom of anti-establishment politics. But they're actually very different in some important ways. And, and one of those ways is that uh, Donald Trump and his administration have been pretty aggressively protectionist at times. They've really upset the established free trade order in, in many important ways, both in their bilateral relationship with China, but also through their attitude towards the World Trade Organization. But actually, many Brexit advocates want more free trade after Brexit. So this is a kind of doubling down on free trade, not a renunciation of free trade. And it's quite different from what's going on in the United States in that sense. But this is in many ways quite an inauspicious moment to be uh, launching a kind of ambitious free trade crusade in the wake of Brexit, because uh, we have generally a move towards more protectionism. It's been more difficult to agree new trade deals. 
Um, and now the United Kingdom is sort of positioned between a European Union bloc that has been antagonized and alienated by the Brexit process, um, a Chinese economic um, power that had been courted under the Osborne and, and Cameron partnership um, from 2010 onwards, but now looks much less stable as a long-term economic partner because of the degree of security rivalry between China and the United States, uh, China and, and the United Kingdom. And then finally, this attempt to create a free trade deal with the United States, which of course could be fruitful in economic terms, but Britain shouldn't expect um, any favours from the United States in those trade deals. The US is obviously a much, much more powerful partner um, and it is much less dependent on securing a free trade deal with the United Kingdom at the moment than the other way around. Um, and in addition, if you, you know, the story that I tell in the book is that even during very close periods of military alliance and political allegiance between the US and the UK, the US has never hesitated to use its economic and political power to leverage what it wants from the United Kingdom, uh, whether that be the, the debt weapon after the First and Second World Wars, which was used to kind of dismantle British imperial power and open up Britain to US political and economic influence. Um, so this kind of mediating role now in the light of Brexit, I think is going to be really, really difficult to play politically, and it's going to take considerable diplomatic uh, skill from the officials involved in, in negotiating these agreements. What seems to me to be another challenge is you've described what is, by the, by the standards certainly of the financial sector in the United Kingdom, a, a, very, a very successful process. Um, but it's also based upon a series of economic principles, which are probably under greater attack than they have been for a very long time and right across the world from um, centre-left and centre-right governments, for example. We see this year in particular a level of state intervention in markets um, that we haven't seen in, in, in many decades. And so the kind of the, the philosophical, economic, liberal underpinnings of the entire project you describe are also under threat, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. We're living through a really transformative period in which that sort of dominant market-oriented ideology and, and, and sets of principles are, are under attack and appear to be unravelling, particularly post-COVID, um, in which obviously we've seen extraordinary levels of, of government intervention. Looking at the Conservative government in the UK, the types of economic intervention that we just would never associate with the contemporary Conservative Party outside of the context of this unprecedented health crisis. So there has been a trend towards much more interventionism by the state. Things have become more politicised and the old consensus around free markets and light touch regulation is unravelling to a certain extent. However, in the area of finance, we've seen much less encroachment on those principles than in, for example, the way in which trade politics have been reconfigured in recent years. And so one of the really interesting things at the moment, when we compare it to previous periods of instability in the international economy, or periods in which there's been a kind of shift from one ideology to another, is that free capital flows and movements between countries have really been relatively unscathed so far. We haven't seen any serious attempts to bring capital back onshore to stop the mobility of, of, of money across borders. And we haven't really seen any serious attacks on the very developed global financial markets that have been set in place um, over the past few decades. 
So in a way, there's a bit of a disjunction here between what we're seeing in terms of domestic state intervention in certain areas of, of economic management, in terms of trade politics. And then when we think about international finance, um, a much more liberal way of doing things still. Um, you know, it's not clear how long that will continue. And perhaps we're going to see more and more um, political contestation around that in the, in the coming years. Um, but I think the other point that I, I want to make that's really important is that this kind of financial model set in place, in particular by um, the UK and the US, has had really damaging impacts. Um, domestically, it's led to much greater inequality. Um, it's led, you know, it's been one of the factors that's contributed to deindustrialization and the decline of traditionally more high skill, high paying jobs that were important for income equality. Um, and it's created huge financial stability risks. We saw those in the global financial crisis where the kind of markets that have been created uh, through New York and London imploded spectacularly and the contagion spread throughout world financial markets. And the impact of that crisis has shaped our politics right up until the present. And we're still working through the, some of the implications of that crisis. Um, and so... In the long run, I think if we want a more stable and equitable economic model, we need to really take a critical attitude towards um, the sorts of dynamics that have occurred between the US and the UK post-Second World War and think about a new kind of financial model that's more balanced towards equitable outcomes and also, of course, increasingly ecological stability. So that neoliberalism, which is the shorthand for what you've just described there, uh, it was incubated on Wall Street and in the City of London. And am I right in saying it's time to think about bringing it to an end? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it was incubated intellectually in, in, in the financial centres. So there are, you know, it comes from, from Austria and, and Switzerland and Germany and a kind of group of transnational intellectuals who were central to articulating these ideas. But certainly the financial communities in, in Wall Street and London have been major, major beneficiaries of this ideology if we think about it in terms of in material terms, the real winners from the kind of advanced phase of globalization that's been shaped by the dominance of that neoliberal ideology, then the, the, the financial communities in these two countries are right at the top there. Um, and I think it's been a story of massive gains for those working in the sorts of sectors that have been able to take advantage of that new economic order, but huge problems um, for many other people in, in the economy We've seen, you know, stagnant incomes, uh, rising asset prices that are linked to these more developed financial markets that make it more difficult for young people to own housing. And so there's all sorts of generational and geographical inequalities that are really intimately related to this kind of Anglo-American financial model and the sorts of economic ideas and ideology that's been used to advance that model. Uh, so certainly I think it's very much time to break from that model. Uh, the difficult thing is, is finding an alternative that can build support and consensus um, in the coming years. Indeed it is. We'll leave it there. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, the Political Economy of the Special Relationship is published by Princeton University Press. Uh, that is it for today. Thanks to Jeremy for joining us and to Declan Common for producing. And before we go, can I just ask you, if you'd like to support the podcast and indeed the journalism of the Irish Times, please sign up for a subscription by going to irishtimes.com slash inside, where you can get unlimited access to all our content at the introductory price of just one euro for the first month. So that's irishtimes.com slash inside. 
side. And remember, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening. 